0: you're listening to TIP.
1: On today's show, I bring back fan favorite Jeremy Schneider to talk about common investing misconceptions and his sins for investing, as well as advice on how to build true, sustainable wealth. Jeremy is a successful entrepreneur and software developer and the founder of Personal Finance Club, a resource that aims to aid investors in the most effective path to building wealth. Jeremy's first appearance on Millennial Investing is our most downloaded episode ever. I'm not sure if it's conclusive evidence, but I think it helps validate my thesis that personal finance topics are important to being a successful investor. Jeremy in particular is able to give such great practical advice that anyone who is on their personal finance journey can apply to build wealth. If you haven't listened to our first episode together, I highly recommend that you go back and give it a listen. It was episode 53. This time around, we go a little bit deeper into common investing mistakes that Jeremy calls sins, hopefully giving you a better understanding of how to approach things like timing the market, portfolio allocation, international ETFs, and emergency funds. Before we get into the conversation with Jeremy, a quick housekeeping note you may have noticed that there was a Real Estate 101 episode this past Monday, just two days ago, in this podcast feed. If you didn't hear the announcement in last week's Millennial Investing episode, or haven't listened to the Real Estate 101 show before, this was probably a bit of a surprise to you. The reason you're seeing the Real Estate 101 episode is because we've combined the two shows that I host, Real Estate 101 and Millennial Investing, into one feed, specifically this feed, the feed for Millennial Investing. Neither of the shows are changing. They're both going to have the same content you're used to. They'll just both be in the same feed now with Real Estate 101 being on Mondays and Millennial Investing remaining on Wednesdays. If you're not interested in the Real Estate 101 show, you're really just here for Millennial Investing, feel free to skip the Real Estate 101 episodes and just continue listening to the Millennial Investing episodes on Wednesdays. And if this is your first time listening to Millennial Investing, because you came over from the Real Estate 101 feed, welcome. I really hope you enjoy this show as well. If anyone has any questions about the transition or any of the content that we ever talk about on the shows, the best place to reach me is on Instagram. My username is therobertleonard. That's spelled out as T-H-E-R-O-B-E-R-T-L-E-O-N-A-R-D. All right. Now, without further delay, let's get into this week's awesome episode with fan favorite, Jeremy Schneider.
0: You're listening to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your host, Robert Leonard, interviews successful entrepreneurs, business leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire the millennial generation.
1: Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Millennial Investing Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Robert Leonard. And with me today, I bring back one of my personal favorite and I know fan favorite guests, Jeremy Snyder. Welcome back, Jeremy.
2: Thank you, Robert. It's a pleasure to be back. I'm so glad to be here.
1: We've talked about this a little bit offline, but you were or have been our number one most downloaded episode. So a lot of people have heard of you, but for those who haven't, tell us a bit about yourself and how you got to where you are today.
2: That's crazy. I'm not sure why that is. And I think we're about to find out if that was a fluke or if uh, there's something to our specific magic of social media sharing or something that worked well in the past. But yeah, my name is Jeremy Schneider. I'm the founder of Personal Finance Club. Kind of my shtick is that I retired at the age of 36. I just turned 40 like a month ago. So I'm a few years older than that now. But in college, I got a job offer from Microsoft to go work there as a software engineer. I turned it down and decided to start an internet company. I had no idea what I was doing. And so for 10 years, I basically built this company and basically figured it out along the way. And then at the age of 34, I sold my company for just over $5 million. I didn't want to be one of those lottery winners that goes back to being a garbage man you know, two years later. So I started reading every book I could on personal finance and investing. And they all said the exact same thing. And it's something that most people just in the normal flow of their lives don't really hear that message. And I really love talking about personal finance and investing. And so I started Personal Finance Club to basically help spread the knowledge of wise financial advice without without any ulterior motives.
1: We're going to cover a wide range of investing and personal finance topics today, but I want to start with one that's been top of mind for a lot of people. And that is, should we be investing when the market is at a record high?
2: That's a great question. And it's a question I get all the time, It's a question I get this year. I got that question last year. I got it in 2018. I got it in 2017. I got it in 2016. I got it in 2015. I got it in 2014. I got it in 2013. Do you know why I got that question every single one of those years? Because they were all highs. Because they were all record highs. And so the question is would you have invested in 2013 if you had the chance at that record high? In fact, it didn't start in 2013. Almost every year is a record high because the market goes up. You know, there are crashes. There's a year where we don't hit a record high sometimes but most years we hit a record high. And in fact, one of my favorite things to do on you know, idle Tuesday nights is to open up a spreadsheet and download the history of 130 years of the US stock market and basically do a little research. I went and looked at every single month in the last 130 years from, or actually it was like 150 years between 1870 and 2020. I looked at just the months that were record highs, all time record highs, the highest the market's ever been. If you invested just in those months and then looked at the performance for the following year, on average, investing starting in those months, you would have an 11.2% return in one year. So that means you're actually on it, you know, and the the history of the stock market, the market goes up a little bit better than 10%. So if you invest starting during a record high, you actually get an 11% return for the following year. Is that what's going to happen starting today? I have no idea because I can't see the future, but I do know over the last 150 years, that's what's ha- been happening. And most years we are in a record high. But since the stock market is basically like a stairway that only goes up, you just kind of got to get in and you're always going to be flirting with record highs, so, which is a good thing because the market goes up.
1: If we are going to invest even at highs like today, how should we consider portfolio allocation when we think about international ETFs? They've significantly underperformed over the last decade. Why does or doesn't that matter?
2: Yeah, international, basically, if you look at the last 10 years, international has done poorly compared to the US. It hasn't like lost the money, it just hasn't gone up as much. But the last 10 years have been a very good 10 years for the US because 10 years ago was 2010, basically right at the bottom of the uh, financial crisis. And so if you can measure just from the bottom of the crisis until today, it's basically this like long march up with a few bumps in the road, like the coronavirus crash, which we've already recovered from. And then when you compare it to the US or the international, which has had like the Greece thing and the Euro thing and the Brexit thing, and they've had like a few like issues that we haven't had, the US has outperformed. And so people ask me, why would I bother investing international if the US has done better? And that what I ask them is, okay, that's what happened the last 10 years. What's going to happen the next 10 years? Is the US going to perform better or is international going to perform better? And they usually say that they don't know because of course they don't know because no one knows. But if you look at back further than ten years, you look back like a hundred years. It basically looks like a seesaw. Like sometimes U.S. outperforms, sometimes international outperforms, and sometimes it lasts five years, sometimes it lasts ten years, sometimes it lasts two years. You know, there's a time between like two thousand two and two thousand seven where international outperformed, in the seventies international outperformed, you know, in the fifties, like, and so it's basically like every decade it has kind of switches, and so. If you invest, if you at this point after we've just had this huge outperformance by the U.S., you then drop international. You're basically selling low. You know, you want to sell high. If you were to say, "Hey, Jeremy, should I drop U.S. and go all in international because like things are likely to flip flop and revert to the mean?" I'd say you're the first person ever asked me that question. And I respect that you're not chasing past performance. Although I still wouldn't do that because we just don't know. And so basically, I guarantee myself the full growth the world economy returns by buying both and i just you know rebalance i just pick my asset allocation you know i have a slight us tilt like you know 60 40 or 70 30 or whatever it is and then just just stick with it because that's how i think i'm going to maximize my own wealth
1: that reminds me when i talked to j l collins and i asked him if he recommended the total stock market index fund versus the s and p 500 index fund and he said both of them will probably do fine. One will do slightly better than the other. I have no idea which one, so I go with VTSAX. And it makes me think of the same idea as international in the US. Both are probably going to do well at certain points. One will outperform the other, but we don't know which one, so have a little bit of allocation to both, I suppose.
2: And you know, in, in his book, JL Collins, he he mentions international and he just he loves VTSAX. He says, you know, there are very like there are people like him and like Warren Buffett and even Jack Bogle. There are people who've who've said that like the US has so much International business that you are inherently diversified around the world by owning US businesses. I can't dispute that because those are people who are probably wiser and more educated than me. But from my world perspective, like, you know, maybe the, something weird happens in the US and we have like the dollar no longer is the global currency or who knows what might happen. Like, I, I you know, I want to have not all my eggs just in one country's economic basket. But like he said, you know, we don't know the future, but I think if you just pick a plan, stick with it. And invest for the long term, you're gonna have a lot of wealth. And if you keep making a bunch of changes, that's where you're probably gonna lose out.
1: I wanna take a look at your seven sins for investing. And we'll start with number one, which is holding cash in retirement accounts. Before I ask my actual question, I wanna tell you and the listeners and everybody on Instagram Live a quick story that I was told by another guest on the show. There was an individual who started investing in their mid 20s and invested for 35, 40 years until they retired. When she got to retirement, she had a couple hundred thousand dollars saved up, which is amazing, but she expected to have a lot more. She ended up consulting with a financial advisor to find out why she didn't have more, only to realize that she never actually invested that money. People told her that she needed to save for retirement, but no one ever told her that she actually had to invest the cash that was going into her account. So it just sat in a cash fund and was never actually invested. And I know that's not your point with your first sin of investing, but when I read about it, this sin, I instantly thought of this story and I just had to share it. But anyway, what is holding cash in your retirement account? Why is that your first sin of investing?
2: That's literally exactly my point. Like that story is like the extreme version. And and I hear a version of that story almost every day where people basically conflate the name of the account with the investments inside the account. So for example, people put money into a Roth IRA and they, like the poor woman in your story, Thinks that they've invested. But there's a second step you have to do, which is to invest the money. You know, it's just like putting money in just moves money from one account to another, like between checking and savings, from savings to Roth IRA. That's fine, but still just cash is sitting there. The magic of investing and the magic of compound growth happens when you take that money and like buy something with it, you know, buy stock in the US or world economy, like we were just talking about. And like I said, almost every day of my life, I talk to someone who opens up their Roth IRA. And sees it's either all in cash or partially in cash. And so that's exactly what the first end of investing is. If you have any sort of investment account, it's very likely that you should have zero cash in there because all the money should be invested. You know, if you're like over the age of 70 and you're just trying to preserve your capital and you want to have some cash available inside of your IRAs, that's fine. But this isn't this isn't over this age of 70 investing. This is millennial investing. And so you millennials out there, no cash in your retirement account. Every single penny should be invested. So when you open up your Roth IRA, if you see it, say anything like cash or core or sweep or uh, you know, anything that looks like it's not an index fund or a stock or an investment, that probably means that you have cash just sitting there. And, and all those different words just mean this is the place that cash sits until it's invested and don't have any money sitting there because you've, you're not investing. You just have money sitting there doing nothing.
1: What if a millennial
2: intentionally
1: leaves cash in one of those funds until maybe they're trying to time the market, maybe
2: they want to wait for a better time to invest. Is that also a sin? Then that millennial is breaking one of my other sins of investing, which I think we're going to get to shortly.
1: A lot of investors that listen to this show are individual stock pickers. So we may not all agree with your second sin of investing, and that is picking individual stocks. Why is picking individual companies to invest in a sin of investing?
2: This sin kind of pains me because I know that just like the temptation and the excitement around investing in individual stocks draws a lot of people in, and if the choice is between not investing or picking random stocks that you that you research or you're guessing or you hear tips, or whatever, I would always prefer investing in stocks over not investing. The problem with picking stocks is that the market is efficient, and so when you or me or any individual person looks at a specific stock and tries to make the decision, is the stock more likely than not? to outperform the market going forward, it's basically impossible to do because everything that I know and that you know and that any individual person knows is already priced into the market. So, for example, if I say, hey, Apple's a great company, I love iPhones, all my friends love iPhones, I'm going to buy Apple. Everybody else knows that too. And so, all that information is already priced in. So, you have to pay so much for one share of Apple until basically all these people who also have that information says, okay, Apple's not that good it's facing threats from Google or there's going to be a lawsuit or the CEO could die or who knows what. That's one penny too much. I'm going to sell my share, right? And so that's what efficient market means. It's like once everyone who has all the information, and this is happening like millions of times a second as, as all these shares are traded constantly when the market's open, that's where the price is met, right? So I can't then look at just from my perspective, decide which stocks to buy. And so what happens when you buy individual stocks is you're basically just exposing yourself to greater volatility. So instead of owning the whole market and guaranteeing yourself your share of every stock, every every sector, you know, every size of company, all that stuff, you're basically concentrating your investments in certain stocks, and then you're gonna have more volatility. But in exchange for that volatility, in exchange for that risk, you're not getting a higher expected return. You know, any set of stocks you buy on average is expected to return the same as the market because those stock prices are all efficiently priced. And so when you trade More volatility for not greater return—that's a bad trade. Um, So that's why that's why stock picking is is a sin. That said, I actually live by the 90-10 rule, which is 90% of my investments go into index funds, buying and holding index funds, just let it ride for decades, let it grow. That's how I think I'm going to become the most wealthy. But then with the remaining 10%, go nuts—you know, pick stocks, Bitcoin, futures, options, trading, whatever you want to do. But I think if you do that and you're very honest about the accounting of it. You'll see that your index fund over time is very likely to outperform your stock picking. I'm not insinuating
1: that you're old, Jeremy, but because you're 40 and on the higher end of the millennial scale, do you think millennials could adjust that 90-10 percentage? For example, I use 70-30, sometimes 60-40, 60-40, as in 60 stocks, 40 index funds. Do you think we could do that as younger investors?
2: And you can do whatever you want. Yeah, and but thank you for calling out my age. Yeah, I was born in 1980. So according to about half the websites on the internet, uh, I'm still a millennial, you can do whatever you want. I believe that your index fund portion is going to grow more. And so it's not really a matter of, you know, I think some people say, oh, I'm willing to take on more risk. But when you say I'm willing to take on more risk, the second half of that statement is in exchange for higher returns. But if you're not getting higher returns, then you don't want more risk, right? So it's not that I'm taking, it's not like I'm taking a a trajectory that's going to have less growth. I'm taking the trajectory with the maximum growth while also mitigating my risk, right? So, but that said, like, if all you did was put 100% of your money and picking stocks and throwing them to the dartboard, you would be in great shape. Like, it's all about putting more money in, right? If someone is picking stocks randomly or doing the research or whatever, and they're putting $1,000 a month and someone else is putting in $100 a month and into an index fund, $1,000 a month is going to win, right? Like, it has way more to do with how much money you're putting in than perfectly getting your, your uh, investing strategy, right? And so, you know if someone's 70/30 or 50/50 50, 50 or whatever i'm not going to like wag my finger and say you've you've gone, you've picked too many stocks i mean i guess that is what i'm doing because i called it a sin but just as a matter of education because i want them to know that they're probably not going to get higher returns out of that portion of their portfolio
3: let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors
0: hey guys about a year and a half ago my wife and i got married and one of the most stressful parts of our relationship has been trying to join our finances together we all know that money issues are a leading cause of divorce, but Monarch, the top rated personal finance app, has built in collaboration features so that you can invite your partner at no extra cost. Together, you can see all your finances, collaborate on your budget, and get insights on your cash flow and recurring transactions. It's the easiest way to manage your household finances. Unlike other personal finance apps that we tried, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch is obsessed with constantly improving the product. And they release updates every two weeks, and allow customers to submit suggestions, vote on requested features, and view the product roadmap. And most importantly, they never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying out Monarch for myself, my wife and I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners on this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com/mi. That's m-o-n-a-r-c-h-m-o-n-e-y.com slash MI for your extended 30-day free trial. Go to monarchmoney.com slash
3: MI for an extended 30-day free trial. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise Flagship Fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise Flagship Fund before investing. This and other information can be found on the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate out there, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase. A higher rate than City, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express too. So if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing, 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024, and is subject to change. A high yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing member of FINRA-SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into a partner bank where they can earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither Public Investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. US only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. All right, back to the show.
1: When I was reading about your third sin of investing, I couldn't help but think about Dave Ramsey's investing approach. With his personal finance advice being what it is, his investing approach really surprises me. What he does is he recommends investors look for actively managed mutual funds that have done well in the past and invest in those because they'll continue to do well into the future. Or at least that's what he says. I don't agree with this strategy at all. Actually, I think Dave is wrong. But what are your thoughts around chasing past performance and why is that a sin of investing?
2: Yeah, so the third sin is chasing past performance. I like Dave Ramsey. I think we owe him a thanks for, for championing, getting out of debt. I think he's largely a voice for like helping you know, millions of people with money. On this, he's just simply wrong. He's, he, in my opinion, he has to make money for his company, and one of the ways he makes money is by having his SmartFer pros who pay him a fee to be part of his network, and those SmartFer pros charge their clients a fee to invest, and they, they recommend they invest in these high-fee funds. And so the mutual funds are getting a fee, the smartfester pros are getting a fee, Dave Ramsey's getting a fee. And guess who's paying all those fees? It's the individual investor. It's like the Dave Ramsey listener who's paying all those fees. And so Dave Ramsey, if he champions index funds, and index funds are like a main line from the growth of the US economy and the growth of the world economy directly into your investment account with like as small of fees as possible. If he champions that, he cuts out himself, the SmartFester Pro, and the mutual fund company all from that, that system, right? And so that's why Dave says, he would, says what he says. Regarding his, his like proposal that you can look at the performance of a mutual fund and buy the one that that's, has a history of performance and then it will continue to outperform. You know, there's a study after study after study that have shown that's simply not true. You know, they'll look, there's a study that will look at like 10 years of mutual fund, fund performance. And all those 10 years, maybe 10% of them will outperform the stock market and 90% will underperform. So they just take that, just that 10% and then they look at the next decade, You know, so only the winners now, only the winners over the next decade, 90% of those underperform. You know, so even though they were all outperformers for the first decade and the second decade, they had exactly the same results as the entire set of mutual funds the first time. And then after two decades, they just take the 10% of the 10%. Now we're talking about the 1% of mutual fund and then just track those, the best of the best, the cream of the crop. Over the next 10 years, 90% of those underperform the market, right? And so what it goes to show is that these these mutual funds that have outperformed the market. It's not that they're good. It's just that they're lucky, and it's called you know it's called like a confirmation bias or twenty twenty like hindsight bias, where you know you take a set of a thousand mutual funds and over the course of twenty years, fifty are going to outperform, even though those were those were at random. You can't then just like look at those fifty and say, look, see, we did great. They are outperformed. You know, and I see this all the time when when a, when a new investor is talking to a. A financial advisor, who usually is a not a fiduciary financial advisor, but like a commission-based financial advisor, that financial advisor will say, "Hey, see, we beat the market. Here's a couple different prospectuses of mutual funds that have a history of outperforming." And then the new investor says, "Wow, great! You found some winners, you know, or you you have the winners." But what they didn't show is that like of the the two outperformers they have, they have 98 that underperformed that they just sweep under the rug at this point and only send out the winners. Are those two going to continue to be winners going forward? almost certainly not. You know, and if it is, it's mostly it's due to luck, not skill. So, um, so chasing past performance is when you look backwards and say, hey, this is what just did well. Therefore, it's what's about to do well. That's simply not true.
1: Yeah. And all these mutual fund companies are dealing with a massive survivorship bias because what they'll do is they'll say, just for round numbers, they'll have a hundred different mutual funds out there. They'll see which ones outperform. Then they'll shut down all the ones that don't outperform. And then, because they're shut down, all their data and history and record goes away, and nobody knows of them or really remembers of them. And then they have the ones that outperformed. And then, like you said, the financial advisors just tout those ones. And now, look, all their funds have outperformed.
2: There's like a there's a chart that I was in one of uh, Jack Bogle's books where he looks at a set of hundreds of mutual funds over the course of thirty years, and like ninety percent of them have just been deleted, you know, just due to underperformance. And the remaining ten percent. 6% 6% of those have underperformed, like they, they're still around, but they've underperformed. And then of like, the, whatever there's like left for 4%, like maybe 2% have outperformed by like 1% and 2% have outperformed by like 2%. And so like, there's, this extreme, like there's like an extremely slim chance that you pick a mutual fund that outperforms. And even if it does, it outperforms by a pretty small proportion. And there's like a huge percent chance that like these actively managed funds get like deleted or rolled into another fund or just basically swept under the rug. Survivorship bias, that's a good, way to, that's a good word for it.
1: I was talking to another investor the other day. His name's Gary Mashuris, and he runs a fund. And what he taught me was was really interesting. And intuitively, it makes so much sense, but I really hadn't thought about it in my 10 years of investing. But what he said is, why do all these companies have so many different funds when they just, if you want to earn your best, like if you're going to put your best product out there, why do you have all these different funds? There has to be one that's the best and then everything else is subpar. So why would you not just focus on your best product and put all your best ideas into one fund? It just doesn't really make sense to have all these other products that are, are subpar.
2: Well, it makes 100% perfect sense when you realize they're just like throwing spaghetti against the wall, right? And then the, and the thing, that, thing that sticks they're like, eh, see, we knew all along. If they knew all along, they wouldn't have had all the other stuff. I mean, you know, it gets a little bit nefarious, but like, I think I could create a pretty effective scam where I went and created 10 or 50 or hundred different YouTube channels. Then on every channel for a week, I would like tout a different number one stock and like post the video, maybe post as unlisted or something. And then all the YouTube channels where I happen to post a loser, just delete them all. And then the remaining one that happened to have like six winners in a row, then, like, release it to the world and say, "Hey, look at this! For six weeks in a row, I've picked a consistently p- picked a stock that has jumped up by five percent. I've never been wrong. Look at the dates. Look at what happened afterwards. Here, here, here." And people would be like, "This dude can pick stocks, right?" But really, I was just like, I was just putting up nonsense there too. And then I would sell a, a subscription to my you know, news picking or my stock picking newsletter and make a million bucks. It'd be great. I'm tempted to do that, except i just I'm a slave to integrity. I can't do it. You're too ethical for that. I'm not sure if if we talked about this last time,
1: but what you just explained is just the modern day version of a scam that actually happened. And I forget which book I read it in. I read it in one of the books, but basically what a guy did was he mailed out letters. I think it was every month. He would mail out a letter to say thousands of different people and he would just send out you know stock picks and then he'd keep sending out these letters. And just by the way probability works is most people will see that he was wrong but some people will continue to get the right letters every single month and will think that he's a genius and has gotten it right for six months in a row. And he raised a ton of money for his fund that way. And it's really just a way to play with, again, this whole idea of survivorship bias.
2: Right. And if you're one of those people who got the winners every time, you're like, dude, this guy's nailing it. I got to go with it. Um, I think J.L. Collins mentioned that in the back of his book regarding the scams. I also think that's like the, the plot of one of the episodes of The Twilight Zone. <laughs> I feel like that, like, this concept has been around a lot. Yeah, but yeah, it could be stock picking. But I mean, that's, ba- like, that's basically what mutual funds are doing. They're just like highly, quietly like sweeping all the losers under the rug and be like, see, we got winners. You
1: have a fun little game on your website that illustrates this next investing sin very well. Of course, it's just a model that helps illustrate the point. But nonetheless, when I played around with it, I thought it was, it was interesting and pretty fascinating. How can timing the market be a bad approach for investors, making it an investing sin?
2: So yes, yeah, So number four, timing the market. So timing the market is any sort of jumping in or out or holding cash or deciding when to make a purchase. And, and, and it can come in a lot of flavors. It can come like holding cash, jumping in now, selling, jumping in, selling. It can come decide like when you decide to dollar cost average. It can come in terms of like buying the dip or waiting to sell or any, anything that you're basically looking at the market and, and trying to time when you should do something. And that's a sin because it doesn't work, right? We don't know based on the world we live in what's going to happen in the future. And so it's, it's kind of similar to the first question you asked, which was not one of the sins, but the first question, which was like, should I invest at an all-time high? And the answer is, of course, because you should always be investing early and often whenever you have cash put in the market, plan to buy and hold for decades because any sort of time in the market's way more likely to hurt you than help you. So if you, wait to, put money, you know, wait to put money in, you're way more likely to see the market go up 50% before you experience a 10% drop, right? So if you're waiting for a 10% drop and then the market goes up 50% before you get it, timing the market was bad. You know, if you happen to be in one of the rare moments where it does drop 10%, then you have to answer the question, well, is it going to drop 50%, 20%? Are we at the bottom? And the answer is you, you never know. I actually have a, a story about this where I look at three different strategies of investing from like 1980 to 2020. One person invests only at the, like right before the four crashes of the last four years. So, right before there's like a 20% or 25% Kuwait crash, there's a 1987 Black Monday, there was a dot com crash, there was the financial crisis, and then the COVID crash. So, they basically saved up all their money and invested right in the record high. Then the second, well, that person continued to hold forever. So, let's call uh, this investor who invested only in the top market Tiffany. So, Tiffany invests only in the top. She invested 250 or 200 bucks a month, but she saved her money in a cash account. And then at the very top of the market, put all her money in only to experience a crash. But she held all of her shares for the remainder of the 40 years. Then the second crash did the same thing. So she always invested at the top. And for her effort, investing at the top of the market, her investment returned $773,000. So over the course of 40 years, 200 bucks a month, even when you invest right before the crash. The second investor, let's call her Brittany, because she invests at the bottom. She saved up all her money in a savings account, just like Tiffany, but instead of investing right before the crash, she invested right at the bottom of the crash. So Tiffany is just, as a brilliant investor, she knows the the exact moment of the bottom of the crash. She's omniscient, she's omnipotent, whatever you want to call it. She does something that no human on the earth could absolutely could ever do. She invested at the bottom of the Kuwait crisis, at the bottom of the day when the 1987 Black Monday, she knew it was going to drop by 30%. She bought the bottom dollar. Same for the dot-com crash. Same for the financial crisis. Same for the coronavirus crash. She did it every single time. Her investment, instead of seven hundred seventy-three thousand dollars, has grown to one point one million dollars. That's pretty good. It's way better. Four hundred thousand dollars better. But still, for being omniscient, it's not that much better. You know, most of the growth in both cases came from holding for the whole period. But wait, there's one more investor. It's slow and steady, Sarah. (laughs) Slow and steady, Sarah. Sarah doesn't know when the market crashes are coming. She doesn't even attempt to know instead of saving up her money and dumping it in the market at the perfect moment, she just puts her 200 bucks a month in each and every month. If it's high, she puts 200 in. If it's low, she puts 200 in. Every single month for the entire course of her investing career, she puts it in. She probably logged into Vanguard 40 years ago, set it on autopilot, and didn't log into her account ever again. After her 40 years, her investment, remember, investing at the top was 773,000. Investing at the bottom, perfect timing was 1.1 million. Sarah gets to over $1.6 million. So like 50% more than the perfect timing. And the reason that is, is because even with perfect timing, Brittany who bought at the bottom, she's like waiting, she's like watching the market go up, waiting for the crashes. Meanwhile, Sarah is like riding the market up. And then when it goes down, she's riding it down and putting more into the bottom. So that that dollar cost average, that that early and often investing actually outperforms perfect omniscient market timing. You know, this is a little bit of a corny example because Theoretically, if you had perfect market timing, you could be buying and selling it every single intraday dip and valley, and you could be tripling your money every single week and have more money than Jeff Bezos in two months or something. But you know, in general, what people try to do in buying the market or buying the dip or buying at the bottom, you know, it doesn't work, even if you know ahead of time when the bottoms are like Brittany did.
1: I love dollar cost averaging. I was actually taught it when I was 18. I worked at a bank. I was a loan officer, and we had an in-branch financial advisor. And he came over to me and he said, I don't have a ton of time to teach you about investing right now, but he knew I was into it. So he said, if you don't know about dollar cost averaging, you should look into it. And I did. And that's when I I researched it, started to learn about it, understood how powerful it was. And ever since then, I've used it to this day for the last seven, eight, nine years. And what's great about 401ks is is if you're contributing weekly, biweekly with your paycheck, you're automatically dollar cost averaging, which should do well for you over the next 40 years as you invest throughout into retirement.
2: The 401k, like, I think it's kind of like a weird rule that like, your, your employer has to decide which things you're allowed to invest in and you only get to take advantage of this tax break at the discretion of your employer, but it does encourage that regular investing. And so most millionaires get there just by like regularly investing When they wake up and like, oh, got a million bucks in the old 401k, you know? Uh, meanwhile, if they're trying to like out there like hustle and pick stocks and day trade Bitcoin or whatever, you know that doesn't end up being a million. It's just the the slow and steady thing over a career which builds the real wealth.
1: Going back to Dave Ramsey's investing approach, and this episode is totally not meant to just bash on Dave. I like a lot of what Dave does, but going back to the actively managed mutual funds, investors are typically required to pay very high fees. We talked about how all the other downsides to actively managed mutual funds, but Another one is the very high fees relative to other options out there. Why is paying high fees detrimental to investors' long-term wealth creation?
2: So yes, that is in sin number five, paying high fees. And the reason is because it's the only thing that you can do as an investor that is predictive of better future performance. And so there's a study that looks at, I think there's like 11 different factors of of mutual funds of actively managed mutual funds, and they were like Morningstar rating and past performance and manager tenure and cap ratio and um, an expense ratio and and like every every way that you could define a or or measure or put a metric on a, an actively managed mutual fund. Of those eleven factors, ten of them had no correlation to future performance, and one of them did. And the one that had correlation to future performance is lower fees. The lower the fee, the man, the, the, the mutual fund. The higher the performance. And think about it, right? Like, if you think of the world of stocks, like every single stock in the world, like Google, ExxonMobil, Amazon, Apple, you know, FedEx, whatever, all these stocks, they're just pumping money into the market and they're just profiting and growing and generating revenues. And all this can basically be encapsulated into an index fund. Like, that is the whole market. If then all these traders are trading these same exact stocks and like taking all the cream off the top and putting it in their pockets and returning what's left over, on average, all of those, returns are reliably mathematically going to be less than the market because there's money being shaved off the top by the active managers, the traders, right? So as an individual investor, since we don't know, you know, studies and sector studies have proven basically that we don't know ahead of time, which active manager or which strategy is going to outperform. The only thing we can do to improve our own future performance is to minimize fees and fees can be crippling. If you just pay a 2% fee, which is, you know, a 2% fee is, can be pretty high, but a lot of times there's like a 1% fee in a mutual fund and there's like, there's a little bit of a front load and there's an account fee and it kind of like all this stuff adds up. But just a 2% fee, it doesn't sound like much either, like out of 100%, you get 98% plus all the gains and they just take 2%. But the 2% fee over the cost of a career basically erodes half of your nest egg, so it would you know a 2 million dollar portfolio into a 1 million dollar portfolio just from the cumulative devastating impact of that 2% fee. And so when you're trying to improve your own future growth, minimizing that fee, you know, an index fund these days is like about 0.1% or lower and the average actively managed fund is like 1% or so, so you can get 10 times less fees just by buying and holding index funds. Yeah, I think my
1: S&P index fund is 0.03%, which is just crazy.
2: Fidelity actually offers four zero 0% expense ratio index funds, because they just saw this battle happening. They're like, well, whatever. We'll just have it be like a loss leader and try to sell something else. So yeah, they have like a US large cap an international and maybe a small cap or something. Four different 0% fee index funds if you want to go sign up with Fidelity. Although, I mean, when people ask me if they should switch that 0.1, 0.030, they're all so close, it doesn't really matter. So if you were with Vanguard or something, don't switch to Fidelity just to like lowered by like a few basis points and you know things like bonds you, you can't really trade for free and so those index funds will never be free anyway so it's not really worth like splitting hairs over that last couple of basis points if you're talking about switching from 1% to 0.1 or
1: 0.03 then i would say that that's worth it but if you're talking about 0.03 to 0 it's really not not worth the effort and the time and all that to switch
2: yeah, when you like chart this over time, like one, a 1% fee will turn into like hundreds of thousands of dollars. And then like a 0.03% fee will t- turn into like a few hundred bucks. And it's just like, you know, it's just so little compared to the growth of the entire amount that you can't even reliably expect it to matter. You know, maybe just the day you buy or whatever would have a bigger impact than that tiny fee.
3: Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors.
2: Hey
0: guys, the Range Rover Sport leads by example. that's landroverusa.com
3: today's show is sponsored by public.com that's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high yield cash account while we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate out there we can say this it's a higher rate than robinhood a higher rate than sofi a higher rate than marcus a higher rate than wealthfront a higher rate than betterment frankly a higher rate than capital one a higher rate than ally a higher rate than barclays a way higher rate than bank of america and chase a higher rate than City, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express too. So if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing, 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024, and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing member of FINRA-SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into a partner bank where they can earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account.
0: Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply.
3: All right, back to the show.
1: If I had to pick one of my favorites of your seven sins of investing, I think I might have to pick this next one, which is number six. This sin is thinking short term, and the reason I like this one so much is because we talk mostly to people aged twenty to thirty-five here on the show, and unfortunately, this tends to be the demographic that thinks the most short term and tries to get rich quick. Why is thinking short term actually a really good way to stay broke rather than becoming rich?
2: I think you see it all the time. I see it all the time. It's basically people who are trying to. Get rich quick, and you know I, that phrase sounds so like cliche at this point. I don't think anyone thinks that's what they're doing like they're like oh I'm not trying to get rich quick I'm just trying to like become a Bitcoin billionaire or start an MLM that's going to explode or whatever, but any sort of like short term thinking where you're trying to like build wealth in a year or a few months or even two years you know if you look at like Warren Buffett's wealth, it was built over like sixty years right, and when he was young he wasn't he didn't make. million dollars in a day, he was making long-term decisions. He says things like, if you wouldn't own a company for a decade, I wouldn't even think about owning it for a minute. He's not trying to figure out what company is going to go up this month or this year. He's trying to look at what company is going to be a good company for decades, right? And sometimes people like see what I talk about and they say, oh, I don't want to wait 40 years to get rich. And I was like, well, you you got two choices. You can can get rich slowly or you can get rich not at all. And because the get rich quick mentality Is is what keeps someone broke. You know, one non stock market like story might be someone who's trying to like flip houses, and flipping houses could be a a good business. But someone who's who's trying to like buy and sell real quick, or like do arbitrage, or move 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 houses here and there, they might make money in one, lose money in one. And I could see someone doing this for like a decade, and then they like they wake up in ten years, they own zero houses and they have no money, and they're like, what happened? I've been hustling for ten years. Meanwhile, an investor who bought one house. Waited a couple of years for the house to appreciate in value and for the renters to you know pay pay down the mortgage. Then they bought another one, and maybe it wasn't even two, maybe it was five years before they bought the second one. Then maybe on year seven they bought the third one, and then maybe year eight they bought the fourth one. Then year ten they bought the fifth one. And then then ten years later they own five rental houses. The first one now is paid free and clear. It's cash flow positive by thousands of dollars because they're just like nope. Even you know even if I said, even if I had to sit on this first one for five years. That's okay because I'm thinking long term and I know that this is going to eventually start to snowball.
1: There's a graph out there, and I'll try to find it and put it in the show notes for anybody that's interested. But there's a graph out there of Warren Buffett's net worth, and it's a bar chart and it shows how it's progressed as he's gotten older. And he was really rich even when the numbers are small, but it starts out so small, so small, so small. And it really doesn't get big. His wealth doesn't really like exponentially grow until he was like in his 60s or 70s. And that's when it really explodes. And that just, it really illustrates that long-term thinking.
2: That's how exponential growth works. Cause it's all the you know, Although I mean, you know, in his like 40s, I think he was like well into the millions. But it also demonstrates like how big a billion is. People hear billion and million and they're like, oh, they both rhymes with illion. But like a billion is a thousand millions. And so, if, like when you want to like understand the difference between a billion and a million, it's about a billion. <laughs> you know, it's like that's billions. All of it at that point. And so, yeah, when you see him at like. 40 million at the age of 50 or 40 or whatever it was. And then now he's at like 50 billion. That forty million like looks like it's nothing. Yeah, there
1: was a an analogy used the other day. I, I forget where I heard it, and and I'm gonna butcher the exact numbers, but it really like makes you think. And because like you just said, you hear a million, a billion, you don't realize how big of a difference that is, but then you hear it in the perspective of time. I forget exactly what this was, but like a million seconds is like a couple of days or something like that. And then a billion seconds is like thirty years or or something ridiculous like that. And that's the huge difference between a million and a billion.
2: As a, yeah, I've heard that same analogy. And then you look at like Jeff Bezos's net worth of 150 billion, you're like, okay, that's thousands of years then. So it's like so like if you if to make a million dollars, you have to get like a dollar a second for two days, whatever you like said. But to get To get you know Jeff Bezos, you have to have like thousands of years, and you'd be you'd be dead long before you could get that money.
1: Yes, there's another another analogy out there. Jeff Bezos could spend like a couple hundred million, I think, per day, every day for the rest of his life without making another dollar and and never spend all of his money. It's it's pretty crazy. That dude's got a lot of money. Let's wrap up your seven sins of investing with the most deadly sin of them all, and that is not investing early and often why is this the most deadly of them all? And what if we go against the other six sins that we discussed, but we at least get this one right and invest early and often?
2: It is the most deadly. And you and I, I think we love getting a little bit academic, you know, talking about stock picking and expense ratios and PE ratios and timelines and, and highs and lows. But at the end of the day, it's all about how much money you put in. So on this example, I, have, I show Amanda who puts $500 a year away to investing for 10 years. Not bad, 10 years is a pretty long time frame. 500 bucks a year. It's real money, it's like a PS four or five, whatever they're on. 500 bucks a year for 10 years grows to 60, $6,900, $6,907. So ain't much, like that ain't gonna be your retirement money, like you can't even buy a car with that. But Ashley invests $500 per month instead of per year, and she does it for 40 years. So again, it doesn't sound that crazy difference 500 a month versus 500 a year, 10 years versus 40 years. But instead of $6,900, Ashley's investment has grown to $1.1 million, actually almost $1.2 million. So the difference is massive. And so all these other sins, except for maybe the cash when one, that one's pretty bad, but all these other sins like time the market, the expense ratio or stock picking or all, all this stuff, like if you do that perfectly, and you don't put any money away and you don't do it for a very long time, it doesn't matter. On the flip side, if you're putting away a lot of money for a long time and you're screwing up all the other stuff, you're still going to do great. I start with the cash one because it's just such a d- damaging thing. I end with this one because it's so easy to get lost in the weeds and people are like Roth versus traditional and and uh, the tax rates and, and timing and ETF versus index fund and like all these like kind of academic discussions. And I'm like, hey, dude, <laughs> If you just put away a thousand bucks a month into a brokerage account and buy some random stocks, like you're going to make a ton of money, and it doesn't, you know, it doesn't matter if you perfectly nail stuff. Meanwhile, if you don't put the money away, it's not going to matter. You know, if you put ten bucks, <laughs> ten bucks a year away, you're going to have no money.
1: I love this discussion because not that long ago, probably three or four years ago, I was the investor that had to get everything right. I didn't really care about the simplicity. I wanted every single tax advantage, every single basis point that I could eke out on the fees and returns and everything like that. I wanted everything to be as fully optimized as I could. And as I get older, granted, I'm only 25, so I'm not old, but as I get older, I am valuing simplicity so much. And I just really default to that advice you just gave, where you just do something that's not atrocious, do the right semi-right thing at least, and do it for a long time, and you'll turn out okay.
2: Yeah, I actually have had the exact same experience where, you know, when I had my windfall six years ago, I like read all the books and like, you know, read all the details and got very academic about it. Like, I bought a set, like, like seven different ETFs and I heard ETFs are more tax efficient than index funds and like did efficient fund placement between like my, my retirement accounts and my brokerage account. And, you know, looking back on that, I'm like, did I actually make more money than if I just bought a single index fund and just put the same exact index fund on all my accounts? And, and the answer is like I don't I don't really think so you know and I think that that complexity that I was adding and not that I kept it made it that complex right I bought seven ETFs or whatever but that complexity I think is more likely to hurt the individual investor than help right so if I just throw all this money in and that's one of the reasons I prefer index funds over ETFs because you can you can automate it you invest in dollars you can put every dollar in you don't need to worry about shares just put it all in leave it there forget about it I think that's what's most likely to make you most wealthy. And all the tinkering to try to like get it perfect is it actually not likely to be very helpful if, if if it doesn't even hurt you. Based on our conversation in this episode so far,
1: most people can probably tell you're a simple, non-stock picking investor. So when I saw you post about IPOs on Instagram the other day, I actually found it quite interesting. You posted a, a pretend dialogue between two people where the first person said, "Hey, I just bought into this hot new IPO." and now it's up 10%, should I sell? And your cartoon character responded by saying, do you remember anyone who bought Tesla, Netflix, Bitcoin, and Amazon, and then sold when they were up 10%? And the other person responded, no. And you said, me either. To me, that insinuates that someone should hold on to these positions. How can that be true if everything we've talked about so far is also true? That's a good question.
2: And basically, I think this is really... Illustrating one of the seven sins, which is the sin of short term thinking. And so, you know, like I just said, getting it perfect isn't what's most important. It's like doing the big things, right? Like buying and holding for long periods of time. And so, yeah, I don't know if this cartoon character or your, you know, whoever the listener is right now, if your IPO, if your IPO is going to outperform. But I do know that every single IPO in history, if you want to like have it be like a 100 bagger, which means it goes up 100x, you're going to have to experience like huge ups and downs and swings, right? Because it's the longevity of the the whole time, which makes it so amazing, right? And so when you look at like Amazon or Netflix or, or Tesla or whatever, even Bitcoin, like all those only look like these hot, amazing stocks now, but they've all been around like 10 to 20 years. And so to have realized that amazing gain, you would have to hold it for 20 years. And so while I still am not a fan of stock picking, because I don't know if this IPO is going to outperform. And if this cartoon character was like, Hey, I'm just gonna sell and then like I'm gonna do index funds from now on to guarantee my wealth, I'd be like, That's fine. But I guess I'm really really pointing out that like the the sin he's committing here is short term thinking because like what's ten percent? You know, ten percent isn't how you build real wealth. You have to you have to hold for long periods of time. He's also trying
1: to time the market. He's saying it's up ten percent. I'm trying to time this. I think because why would you sell, right? If you think it's gonna continue to go up, you, you wouldn't sell, you would hold on to it. So He's essentially trying to time the market and say, well, this must go down. So I'm going to sell. So he's essentially breaking a couple of different sins.
2: That's true. He's picking individual stocks. He's timing the market. He's thinking short term. He's breaking all sorts of sins. And, you know, if he sold and took the money and then spent on something else or, you know, kept churning, if you fast forward his life 40 years, he's probably going to end up with way less money than if he just let it ride and kept it snowballing over and over and over. Right. So he's an investment sinner, this guy. And you don't have
1: IPOs as a specific sin, but I do. Uh, I'm not a big fan of IPOs. I, I was a little bit tempted with Airbnb recently just because I like the business model, but I, my temptation didn't overwhelm me and I didn't buy any shares. And I tend to, to stay away from IPOs because that's one of my fictitious sins if I had any.
2: Yeah. It seems like they attract a lot of short-term thinking money. And then people, when they don't see the returns that they want after you know a few months or a few like a year or two, they sell and then you don't get that that like long term growth, you know, you're just buying in high when everyone else is all excited about it, even though the price isn't merited. But if, if I could prove that that was also inversely true, I would just like short every IPO and, you know, put that money in my index funds or whatever. But I'm with you. I, I, don't, I don't know if they're going to do well.
1: I recently had a guest on the show. His name was Chris Kawaja, and he recommended that people do invest their emergency funds. But I, re- I know you recommend not investing your emergency fund. I like getting differing opinions on the same topic from different guests so that the listeners of the show can hear both sides of the argument and then make their own educated decision. I think too often people are only fed one-sided information and then they make decisions using confirmation bias. So to avoid that, I want to hear from you. Why do you think people shouldn't invest their emergency funds?
2: I'll tell you why with all due respect to your previous guest. Basically, I think Part of building wealth is having a good defense. You know, Part of offense is having a good defense. And part of building wealth is not being broke. And if you're broke, like you're cash poor, being broke is very expensive. It would incur overdraft fees or credit card fees or payday loans or borrowing money or going back into debt or whatever. And like being broke is very, very expensive. And so you create this emergency fund, which isn't a massive amount of money, like maybe three months or six months of your spending, maybe 10, 15, $20,000, depending on like you know, how volatile your job is and how big your families is and stuff like that. This amount of money isn't going to like change your life if it's invested, but it could change your life if you need it. And usually when things go bad, they go bad at all the same time, right? So if the market drops by 50% because there's a global pandemic or something, and then you also lose your job, if that money was invested, your emergency fund would go from 10,000 to 5,000. Then you have this like devastating choice to make do I sell when the market's down 50% to buy food? Or do I go into debt or have some other thing? Or if, it, if it's all $10,000, like, okay, I can spend $2,000 a month and have five months and work a side hustle or whatever and make it. And so that money, you know, and despite cash paying basically nothing these days, the money is actually working for you. It's working for you in the exact same way that insurance works for you. So when I buy insurance on my house in case of a fire, I lose that money if I don't have a fire, and that's fine because I'm protecting myself against the bad thing happening. And having your emergency fund in cash is doing the exact same thing. You're paying a little bit of money in the opportunity cost of not investing it to protect yourself in the case of the bad thing happening, which is the market crashing and you losing your job at the same time. And so I'd say it's it's very you know a very good idea to like not invest your emergency fund and also not invest any money that you plan to spend within five years because there's just the growth opportunity over such a short time frame isn't enough to make it worth the volatility you would have to endure.
1: That's exactly why I talk about personal finance here on this podcast. When I originally launched a show, it was supposed to just be focused mostly on stock investing, really. But then as I got into it, I realized that how big of a piece being a successful investor personal finance is. And I, and I talk about this and I hadn't really put these two pieces together until I started the podcast. I didn't realize that you needed to have a strong personal finance base in order to be a successful investor because of what you just said. It, if you don't have that personal finance base, If something goes wrong in your life with your personal finances, if you need to make a debt payment or you lose your job or whatever, you have to cash out of those investments at the wrong time. And that's not how you become a successful investor. You need to be able to invest for the long term like we've talked about through all these sins. That's just not possible if you don't have that strong base. It's like building a house, right? You need the strong foundation. And I think for being a successful investor, that strong foundation is a strong personal finance
2: base. I agree. I think that's a great way to think about it. You have to be a diverse, just like a, a football player. If you're like a quarterback, if you can just throw really, really hard, but you don't have like good core strength and mobility, you're not going to be a very good quarterback, right? You have to like have a, every aspect of the game down because, you know, if, if uh, your stock picking is great, but you are in crippling debt and you're an abusive spender and you don't have emergency fund, stock picking is not going to matter much, right? So you kind of got to like have a holistic uh, approach to finance.
1: And if you don't have your personal finances in order, you're not going to have money to invest.
2: Right. Or you're going you're gonna to lose it pretty quickly when you got to go uh, pay off your gambling debts or something. What has
1: been the most influential piece of advice that you've ever received? It could be about business, entrepreneurship, investing, even just life in general. What piece of advice has had the biggest impact on you?
2: This is a hard one for me because it's like kind of generic. I'm like, man, it's like advice that's changed my life. And I, the thing that I always come back to in terms of success in life is persistence. And Calvin Coolidge, who was a US president, who I know very little about. I'm sorry, Calvin Coolidge, I should probably do some more homework on you. But he does have this famous quote about persistence. I'm going to read it for you right now. I'm not really a quote guy. I feel like it's a little bit corny. But I'm going to read it because I think it's great advice. And it's as follows Nothing in the world can take the place of persistence. Talent will not. Nothing is more common than unsuccessful men with talent. Genius will not. Unrewarded genius is almost a proverb. Education will not. The world is full of educated derelicts. Persistence and determination alone are omnipotent. The slogan press on has solved and always will solve the problems of the human race. That's the end of the quote. And I love that because it's true, right? Like how many people do you know that have like a PhD and they're like, you know, bums teaching, you know, and I not mean teaching, but like, you know, they're bums that are not leaving their college town or, you know, haven't really like made, lived up to what they studied or I know all sorts of talented people whose lives are falling apart, genius, whatever, but like people who just never give up, who are persistent, who keep pressing on, those are the people who end up being successful. And like that's true in my life too. When people ask me, like, what's your secret for business? I was like, dude, I was just stubborn. I did not give up. Like I, you know, I I wasn't like a perfect business guy. I'm still not, but like I just, I don't give up. I just keep, I'm like, well, I don't want to, don't want to admit defeat. So I'm going to keep, keep going. And you know, business doesn't go out of business until, you know, until you give up. And so, yeah, persistence, and that's true with investing too. You know, right up, down, buy and hold, and the people who keep pushing and keep investing more and more and just pressing on—they're the ones who are going to build that massive wealth.
1: We've talked about this in the perspective of Instagram, right? You started out, and you've just been persistent every single day, being there and doing what you need to do. And I've never heard it in your defense. I—I don't know much about him either. I actually didn't even know he was a president, so uh, you're one step ahead of me. But I think the modern day kind of quote of that, or at least the one that I've heard of that I like is hard work beats talent when talent doesn't work hard, right? And talent can be replaced with education. You know, hard work beats educated people if educated people don't work hard. And I think that goes back to the same point you just made. I just think it's so true. You put in the hard work, you be persistent, and really you could do
2: anything. And yeah, I'm not like an especially good Instagram guy. So like for context people listening, I I started my account last January. So I'm almost two years old and I had like 150 some thousand followers right now. And you know, for talking about index funds on Instagram, you know, it's not millions or whatever, but it's pretty good in this space. And it's not because I'm like some brilliant, brilliant index fund research guy or something like that. I really think the thing, the reason I do so well is because I post every single day, every single day for two years, I posted, I like comment, I stay persistent, I I respond to DMs. I'm just pushing every single day. And in combination with that, I'm basically trying to actively improve, you know, I don't just do the same people who are just like posting like quotes over landscapes or something, you know, it's, that's not really demonstrating improvement. I'm like, looking at what's coming back, I'm seeing what posts are doing well, I'm like responding to that, I'm tweaking the the process. And so like those two things, in combination, the persistence, and the continuous improvement. I think that is why I have done well at Instagram. And that's why I did well in business. And I think, you know, that's not because I'm like some brilliant graphic designer or have this like amazing insights into finance. It's just because I've been consistent, persistent, and improving. Jeremy, as always, whether it's for an episode of the podcast
1: or just a personal conversation that we have, I enjoyed our time chatting. Where can everyone listening go to learn more about you and all the different things you're working on?
2: Thank you, Robert. The pleasure is always entirely mine. Uh, yeah. I'm the Personal Finance Club guy. So personalfinanceclub.com. Most of the magic is currently happening on Instagram at personalfinanceclub. And I do basically everything's for free, but I do sell one course that's a $79 course on basically learning to invest in index funds. There's no secrets inside of the course. It's the exact same thing you'll find in uh, books and podcasts and on my website, and my Instagram. But if you like my style and you just want to have it walk through with like videos and demos, you can find that at personalfinanceclub.com as well.
1: I will put a link to all those different resources in the show notes below. You can find them in your favorite podcast player. As Jeremy said, you can find him on Instagram. You can find me on Instagram at the Robert Leonard. If you're having a hard time finding his profile, just go to my followers who I follow, and you'll see his name in there. I don't follow a ton of people. Jeremy is one of them. His advice is great. You'll love all his content. So I highly recommend you guys go check him out. Jeremy, thanks so much.
2: Thank you, Robert. It's been awesome.
1: All right, guys. That's all I had for this week's episode of Millennial Investing. I'll see you again next week.